This story was originally presented as a members-only live event at the Chicago History Museum back in July 2023, but as the recording did not turn out as well as we hoped, my co-host and co-writer Anna Mason and I decided to re-record it. Much thanks to the Chicago History Museum for their invitation to present this story, their amazing research facilities, and for making so much of Chicago's history available to those who want to learn more. And now... It was getting dark as the red-and-white 1969 Ford pulled into the neighborhood in Inverness, an upscale town in Chicago's northwest suburbs of fewer than 1,700 residents at the time. The two men in the Ford had their destination well mapped out, the two-story brick home on four acres of land. The person sitting on the passenger seat held a rifle, and before the night was over, he'd use it to kill a man celebrating his son's birthday with his family nearby. Chicago is well known for its rich, organized crime history, which is often associated with names like Capone, Babyface Nelson, and Bugs Moran, who were part of the well-known gangs active during and after Prohibition. The key person we are discussing today was just as threatening a figure as any mob boss, but his money laundering, hits, and fraud dealings were on a slightly different stage. Rather than the more metropolitan gang sites where the names we know come from, this man lived out his days of crime and fear-mongering at various horse stables on the city's outskirts. Silas Jane was a horse breeder, stable owner, and menace to the people of Chicago. From his early days growing up in the northwest suburbs to his final dying days in a hospital in Elgin, His story reads like an unbelievable Hollywood film noir of the 1940s, with sibling rivalries, suicides, arson, heiresses, and murder. Today we're discussing Silas Jane, the Killer Horseman. I'm Tommy Henry. And I'm Anna Mason. And this is the Chicago History Podcast. Although this episode is not graphic in nature, it does deal with violence, sexual assault, murder, and the death of animals. Listener discretion is advised. The voice you heard a moment ago is Anna Mason, my co-host for this story. Anna is a journalist and Chicago Public Library associate who specializes in local history and archive media. Anna was instrumental in helping craft this tale. A while back, I was researching the completely bonkers story of three young women from the western suburbs who went sunbathing at the Indiana Dunes in 1966 and disappeared without a trace. One story that circulated was that a member of the trio was a horse-riding enthusiast during a time when stables around Chicago were super sketchy, and she may have seen something she shouldn't have, something she shared with her two friends, That something was enough for all three to need to disappear. I started researching crimes involving Chicago horse stables and the key figures involved, and I'm glad to be able to share this story with all of you with Anna's help. Let's get to it. Silas Carter Jane was born to Arthur and Catherine Jane on July 3, 1907. Katie, as her friends and family called her, would go on to give birth to 12 children. 
Arthur Jane, the patriarch of the family, listed his occupation on the 1910 census as farmer, but he took work where he could, including as a truck driver and a stockyard worker. One of Arthur Jane's more profitable ventures was supplying sugar to bootleggers during Prohibition. Arthur also reportedly had a penchant for booze and was known to have a quick temper with his wife and children. Like many children at the time, Arthur and Katie Jane's offspring had to work hard on the family farm, which meant little time for proper schooling. In later life, Silas would claim he achieved success with only a third-grade education. When Silas Jane was a young boy, he allegedly was playing by the lake near the family farm when he wandered near a flock of geese. Spooked by the young boy with dark eyes and a mop of curly hair, one of the geese bit young Silas hard. According to his family, Silas did not cry. Instead, he calmly walked back to the house and grabbed an axe. Returning to the lake, he found the goose that bit him and hacked the creature to bits. Not satisfied, he continued his rampage, killing the rest of the flock. After Silas finished, he calmly walked back to his family home, excitedly telling anyone who would listen about what he had done without any sign of shame or remorse. By the early 1920s, the Jane family was living in Cuba Township in Lake County, just north of Barrington, Illinois, in the northwest suburbs. Silas's mother, Catherine, now separated from her alcoholic husband, Arthur, accepted a job working for a successful Waukegan-based lawyer named George Spunner. George Spunner owned several cabins in Lake Zurich, Illinois, that vacationers could rent during the summer months, and Catherine Jane helped clean and maintain the cabins, as well as doing office work for Spunner. George Spunner was married, but that did not stop him from having an affair with Catherine while she was under his employment. Catherine became pregnant with Spunner's child, giving birth to a son in late 1923. To cover up the affair and protect the reputation of Spunner, Catherine gave baby George the last name of Jane. While Silas Jane was close to his brothers DeForest, Arthur, and Frank, the connection between Silas and his half-brother, George, 16 years Silas's junior, was never strong. The distance between the two would only grow as time went on. When Silas was just 16, he and a friend, both referred to as hard-boiled by the Lake County Register newspaper, threatened several people at a local store in Barrington. Townsfolk, fed up with the actions of these troublemakers, called the local sheriff, who then arrested them both. During Labor Day weekend of that same year, the now 17-year-old Silas Jane was driving around town when he saw 21-year-old Elsie Schultz, referred to as frail in news reports, vacationing in the area from Chicago with her parents. Offering her a ride, he suggested they could go for ice cream at the local soda shop. Instead, he took her to a secluded spot and raped her. Newspapers at the time avoided the explicit details of Silas's crime. They described Silas as attacking and wronging Schultz. The media reporting the assault this way made us wonder whether all readers at the time knew what the journalists really meant in their use of vague wording, or if Silas was spared explicit exposure for his crimes in the news for reasons we can only guess. At trial, Silas Jane was represented by family friend and father of Silas's half-brother George, George Spunner. 
The result of the trial was just a one-year prison sentence in Pontiac, Illinois. You would think that this experience would teach Jane a lesson. That would not be the case. In 1927, Silas Jane married a Chicago-born woman named Florence Sarah Bendel. That union produced a son born in August of 1928. While the 1930 census shows the three of them living in Cuba Township with Silas's brother DeForest, his sister Eileen, and a boarder, Silas and Florence appear to have divorced sometime in late 1930. Silas would rarely speak of his marriage after their split. Between 1928 and 1933, Silas Jane's name showed up in local newspapers numerous times. In three of those stories, it was a tale of violence, often involving a weapon. He threatened to shoot a farmer with a gun for unspecified reasons, and Silas pistol-whipped a man who Silas claimed owed him money. According to a 1973 Sports Illustrated story about the Jane family, When Silas was losing at a horse show, he cornered the rider who was winning, and Silas and his brother Frank held the rider, while George, then still in his teens, beat the rider until he could no longer compete. By the mid-1930s, Silas and his brothers, Arthur and DeForest, were fully involved in the horse business, having wild horses shipped from the open west in rail cars to Woodstock, Illinois, where the men would herd them while on horseback down the main streets to their ranch. The horses deemed to have potential were trained and sold. The rest were sent to Rockford, Illinois, to be slaughtered for dog food. The Jane Gang, as Woodstock residents referred to them, were looked at as hard-drinking cowboys, always ready for a fight. These were the kind of toughs who would cause locals to cross to the other side of the street in order to avoid their encounter. For a man without much formal schooling, Silas Jane proved to be an effective, smooth-talking businessman. Idle Hour Stables, Silas's most successful and long-lasting stable, opened in 1932 just northwest of Chicago, in Park Ridge. Silas and his brothers used their stables as a riding academy, breeding site, and a training center for the owner's horses and jockeys. Jane's earliest scams consisted of offering lessons to the young daughters of well-heeled families. He would report to the rich parents that their daughters showed promise, but would just need a better horse in order to develop that talent. Silas and his brothers would then charge families tens of thousands of dollars more than the riding lessons and the horses were worth. The Janes were making out famously. By the late 1930s, Silas and his younger brother Frank were living at the Elston Stables near Luna and Elston, roughly 5600 North Elston. Their riding academy proved quite popular, and DeForest Jane, Silas's younger brother by two years, had become a champion horseman, winning numerous trophies and prize ribbons in rodeos around the country. DeForest was known to be the level-headed Jane brother, and unlike his siblings, was far less prone to strong reactions when he didn't get his way. In addition to being a champion horseman, DeForest Jane had also found love with Mae Sweeney, a 25-year-old telephone switchboard operator who lived with her family at 1912 Belle Plaine Avenue in what is now the North Center neighborhood. While DeForest had been married once before, that relationship ended in divorce in 1934. After dating for four years, DeForest and May Sweeney talked of getting married in the fall of 1938. 
That union would never come to fruition. On Saturday, October 15th, 1938, May Sweeney collapsed on the floor of the bathroom in her family's home. A neighbor, policeman Max Christ, was summoned to help. And as he tried to revive her, May Sweeney reportedly said, Get away from me. I want to die. What is there to live for? May Sweeney died two hours later. Authorities later learned that she had swallowed a lethal dose of arsenic. One day after May's funeral, an inconsolable DeForest Jane went missing. DeForest's brothers, Silas and Frank, along with their sister Grace, went looking for him, first at May's family's house on Belle Plaine. Finding no sign of him there, the three siblings headed to Calvary Cemetery in Evanston, where May had been laid to rest. It was here they found DeForest at May's grave, wearing the Western attire May loved best on him. Next to DeForest was the shotgun he had used to take his own life. DeForest had always been everyone's favorite brother, and without DeForest to help keep Silas from giving in to his worst impulses, things were destined to get worse. George Shane started his own horse business in the 1940s, with Silas assisting him during the startup. This was a period where the brothers' relationship was fairly amicable, and soon much of the Chicagoland horse riding and racing scene was controlled by the Jane family. The Janes were determined to keep it that way by any means. Of course, there are more ways to make money than just selling overvalued horses, horse tack, and horse riding lessons to unknowing families, and the Jane family found it insurance fraud. In June of 1940, a mysterious fire broke out at Silas Jane's Green Tree Stables at 4701 North Cumberland in what is now Norwich, near the city's far west border. Fire companies from Chicago, Park Ridge, Morton Grove, and River Forest were all called to help battle the conflagration. While employees and Silas Jane were able to free most of the horses, 10 horses perished in the blaze. That would not be the last fire of unknown origin to occur at a Jane property, Silas pocketed even more profit from the fire. World War II brought its own opportunities for the Jane gang to prosper through disreputable means. With beef as one of the many foods rationed during the war, the Jane brothers sold horse meat to restaurants. While consumption of horse meat was not illegal, the Janes reportedly claimed it was beef, selling it to clueless restaurant owners for double the going rate for horse meat during the rationing years. George Jane's success on his own grew, and he became a licensed judge for the American Horse Shows Association. George and his brother Silas argued about many of the organization's rules because, as George's wife Marion would later share, Silas, quote, didn't believe in a lot of them, end quote. Mary and Jane also recalled that Silas was bothered when George elected not to assist in bombing the homes and barns of competitors on the circuit. This is also at a time during which George started having reason to question his safety. In 1952, while George and his three children were vacationing in Florida, a mysterious fire broke out at their seven-room home in the suburb of Morton Grove. While the cause of the blaze was never determined, George Jane suspected his brother may have had a hand in it. 
The fire was the first of many incidents that would hang like a dark cloud over George Jane until his death. Owning a piece of land as large as a stable meant that Silas's crime career could be organized and often carried out on his property. Almost immediately upon Silas starting business at Idle Hour, the stables began to accumulate a grisly list of murders and misdeeds conducted there, many of which weren't fully discovered until decades later. It is impossible to know all of the crimes that occurred at Silas's stables, but sharing just a few of them can give a dark picture of Silas's world as a businessman and central figure of the Chicago horse trade crime syndicate. The first and possibly most disturbing was the triple murder of the Schussler Peterson boys in October of 1955. Three boys, Robert Peterson, age 14, and brothers John and Anton Schusler Jr., ages 13 and 11, had taken a bus to downtown Chicago for a matinee screening of Disney's African Lion, followed by a visit to a bowling alley. As the three returned home, they were stopped while hitchhiking on Milwaukee Ave, just south of Lawrence, by Kenneth Hansen, a 22-year-old man who reportedly cleaned horse stalls for Silas Jane. Hansen lured the three boys to Idle Hour Stables on the promise of showing them the horses. Hansen was a serial abuser and pedophile, and when Robert Peterson left the barn briefly to brush a horse in another stable, Hansen began assaulting the two Schussler boys. When Robert Peterson returned and saw what was happening, Kenneth Hansen panicked and killed all three boys. Having heard the screams coming from the barn, Silas Jane allegedly entered the building to find Robert Hansen and the bodies of the young boys. Jane was furious. Not wanting to deal with any potential scrutiny by authorities and the effect the murders might have on his business, Jane ordered Hansen to dispose of the boys' bodies. They were dumped in a ditch in a nearby forest preserve, where they were found two days later. Just seven months after Hansen killed the three boys, a large hay barn at the back of the property at Idle Hour Stables burned to the ground, resulting in $30,000 in damages at the time, slightly more than $340,000 today. It was unclear whether the blaze was caused by Hansen to destroy any evidence of the murders or by one of the Janes, but the fire was unquestionably a result of arson. The fire occurred just as the authorities began discussing the exhumation of the boys to look for more evidence. A month later, when the bodies were finally exhumed, the medical examiner found evidence of hay in the boys' lungs. Despite a massive police investigation that included the questioning of thousands of people, including Robert Hansen, no one was charged for the crime for nearly 40 years. In 1959, George Jane moved his business to Palatine, Illinois, in the northwest suburbs, opening tricolor stables. By then, both George Jane and Silas Jane had become millionaires, buying and selling horses, with horse and riders winning various prizes at competitions nationwide. George's success began to overshadow that of his brother Silas, and Silas would not stand for that. After all, Silas once said, Money is my religion. 
It's impossible to know what really happened during many of the crimes that circulated around Silas Jane. In 1961, police received a call about a break-in at the Hours stables. When they arrived, they were greeted by Silas, who claimed that four gunmen broke into another home on the stable grounds and abused a woman when the burglars did not find her husband. Silas supposedly cleared the burglars out by shooting his gun. Jane suspiciously was able to give detailed descriptions of each of the men, including their names, saying that he recognized them because they had recently given him trouble. From there, an intense hunt for the assailants began among police departments all around northern Illinois and beyond. Once the robbers were caught later for a murder of a policeman in Wisconsin, they were all able to give airtight alibis as to their whereabouts that night. It appears as though Silas Jane was not above framing his enemies and reporting them to the police in order to rid himself of them. Silas got the police to do his dirty work. Tensions between the two Jane brothers became more public, with conflicts arising often at the horse races they both attended, finally coming to a head in 1961. Sherry Rude was a professional rider who had been fired by Silas and subsequently hired by his brother George. At the 1961 Oakbrook Horse Show, Sherry Rude won a gambler's choice jumping class. In addition to taking home the blue ribbon, the winning horse gained monetary value. Silas Shane protested the win to the show committee, claiming that Sherry Rude had taken a wrong fence. When the committee backed Sherry, Silas blew up. From there, George was at the top of Silas's hit list. At another horse event, a defeated Silas shouted at his brother from across the crowd, quote, I'll kill you, you son of a bitch. In the years following, attacks on George's life and his business began to occur. George's stable office was shot at. Snipers shot at George and his workers. Tires were slashed. Horses were poisoned. The threats against George continued at a 1964 horse show where Silas was overheard screaming, I'll get you, you son of a bitch, one way or another. By 1965, people had heard Silas Jane threaten his brother George's life at five different horse shows. The most dramatic failed attempt at George's life resulted in the murder of 22-year-old Sherry Rude. Sherry, from the west suburban Hinsdale, Illinois, was the same jockey of George's who was the cause of Silas's anger when he accused her of cheating at a race. She was not only George's star jockey, but a close friend of his. It was a normal day at Tricolor Stables in June of 1965. George Jane was having a training day like any other with Sherry. The only thing out of the ordinary was when two men, who no one recognized, came onto the property, asking about boarding their horse. They left soon after. No one thought of it twice. George asked Sherry to run an errand for him while he worked with one of his horses. Sherry took George's keys, walked out the door, and stepped into his Cadillac. She turned the keys to the ignition and stepped on the gas. Sherry Rude died instantly when the car exploded. Shrapnel flew in every direction and the metal body stayed ablaze. Investigators later found the remnants of the three sticks of dynamite that had been hooked to the ignition. Cheryl Rude's mother claimed that George Jane called her sobbing after the explosion, saying, Why did it happen to her? It was meant for me. 
George voluntarily took a lie detector test, which he passed and offered $5,000, about $48,000 today, for information leading to the arrest of those responsible for the death of his employee. Sherry Rood's name was all over the papers, and the Tricolor Stables community mourned the loss of one of their members. Silas Jane was in Wisconsin for business at the time. It was clear to everyone who knew of the Jane feud that this had been an attempt on George's life. The perpetrator had failed to murder George and had taken an innocent in his place. George Jane was able to get the police to open an inquiry on the bombing, and two men came forward. Both men claimed the bomb had been meant for George and that his brother Silas was behind it. But when it came time to testify, the prosecution's key witness suddenly developed amnesia. Silas Jane escaped punishment once again. Sherry Rood would not be the last person to lose their life due to Silas and George's feud. At the urging of relatives, a special Jane family meeting was called in 1967 with the explicit purpose of getting Silas and George to call a truce. Silas warned George that he would not allow George to dope his racehorses in order to win competitions, which Silas was sure George was doing. George promised he would stop, but remained uneasy about Silas. The brothers shook hands that day, saying that their battle would be over, but both left knowing that this would not be over until only one was left standing. As a result of so many close calls, George eventually hired a bodyguard in the late 60s. This man, named Frank Michel, went with George almost everywhere he went and was told to keep a special attention on Silas and his men. Frank started to bring along his son, Frank Michel Jr., on his assignments. One night in 1969, Frank Michel Jr. came home to his wife and daughters after a night out drinking. Frank Jr. told his family to come with him in the car and instructed his wife to drop him off at Our Day Farms in Elgin, Illinois, and then drive off, circle back, and eventually pick him back up. Our Day Farms was Silas Jane's newest stables, and Silas was spending the night in his home on the property. Frank Michelle Sr. and Jr. had installed a monitor device in Silas's car in order to keep track of his location, but there was one issue. It had run out of batteries. Junior was there at Our Day Farms that night to sneak in and replace those batteries. What happened that night between Frank Jr. and Silas Jane is unclear. The official report from Silas, as told casually and while chewing gum to the police, was that Frank Jr. knocked on the front door and then shot twice through the door without provocation. Silas immediately shot three times back with his 38 revolver then grabbed his 22 rifle. Silas fired both guns from the window at the man he saw fleeing from his yard. Silas grabbed his semi-automatic army carbine and followed the man into the yard. Silas said, quote, I closed in on him as he tried to pull himself up to a fence, and from a distance of eight feet, I emptied the gun into the man. When Frank Jr.'s wife returned to the property to pick up her husband, she saw a man she did not recognize, so she quickly drove away. She was followed. After a terrifying car chase, Mrs. Michelle was able to turn into a dark parking lot and turned off her lights, losing her pursuer. She stayed low and silent in the car with her daughters and eventually saw the car that was chasing her circle back and park in the lot. Some men got out to look around. 
she saw one of their faces. Mrs. Michelle said the man was unmistakably Silas Jane. Back at Our Day Farms, investigators examined Frank Jr.'s body. They found a scrap of paper with a name, address, and phone number of one man, George Jane. The shooting in Elgin that resulted in the death of Frank Michelle Jr. was ruled justifiable homicide by the state's attorney just two days later. Silas Jane escaped punishment for his deeds once again. George Jane was convinced he would reach a premature and violent death, which he told his family in a series of letters that he left for them after he died. He was sure that Silas was going to get him eventually. It was only a question of when and how. That question was answered on October 28, 1970. In the coal black night outside the home on Banbury Lane in the town of Inverness, a man with a rifle crouched in the darkness. Through the home's basement window, he could see George Jane, his wife Marion, and their daughter and son-in-law inside playing cards. George and Marion were celebrating their son's 16th birthday. It was a little after 8 p.m. Not far from the man with the rifle was another man waiting in that red and white 1969 Ford. A single shot rang out. The bullet broke through the window and struck George Jane in the chest. Jane tried to stand, then struggled to say something as his son, daughter, and son-in-law tried in vain to help him. Jane's daughter would later tell police, quote, My father stood up. Blood was spurting out of his chest. His eyes opened real wide and he fell to the floor. George looked to his wife Marion, who was helpless to do anything, as she watched life drain from her husband. Quote, she was on the phone and covered with blood, George Jane Jr. would later testify. We tried to stop the bleeding. George Jane lived 15 excruciating minutes after being shot. He died at age 47, killed by the bullet from a 30 caliber hunting rifle. The man in the 69 Ford escaped into the night. Suspicion immediately fell on Silas Jane. The brothers' rivalry was approaching famous at this point, not only to those who knew them, but to the authorities as well. George and Silas's brother, Frank, sided with Silas. Neither Silas nor Frank's names were included on the list of survivors in George Jane's obituary, and neither brother was invited to George's wake and funeral. When asked about the cause for the exclusion, George Jane's widow, Marion, said, for reasons that go back several years. After two years of investigations, Silas was charged with murder and conspiracy in the death of his brother. Silas hired F. Lee Bailey, criminal defense attorney in high-profile crime suits like the Boston Strangler and O.J. Simpson trials. Silas paid Bailey more than $200,000 to defend him, and Bailey put up a spirited defense on Silas's behalf. Bailey would later mention the Jane trial in his book, F. Lee Bailey for the Defense, writing, quote, Without exaggeration, the Jane case was the most bizarre murder case I've ever had. In what many thought was an airtight murder case, Silas Jane was convicted of a lesser charge of conspiracy and given 6 to 20 years in prison. Bailey declared it a victory. 
More than two decades after the trial, Nicholas Motherway, who prosecuted the case, explained why the jury went with the lesser charge. Quote, everybody was afraid of him, he said. The jury said that's why they didn't go with murder. They were afraid. Silas Jane finally found himself in prison in 1973, but he didn't let being behind bars stop him from making money in the horse business and taking people out who had gotten on his bad side. Suspicious events, all with characters that either worked with or had wronged Silas Jane, began accumulating during the years he was in prison. In 1976, Nimrod Farms, just outside of Milwaukee, burned to the ground. 33 horses died, and damages were estimated at $350,000, nearly $1.9 million in today's dollars. Two horse owners who had dealt with Nimrod's stable owner were enemies of Silas. It was not until several years later that a former cellmate of Silas, Charles Johnson, admitted to authorities that Silas had promised him $30,000 to torch the stables. According to prosecutors in Jane's trial, Jane engineered the arson plot to start a feud between the Nimrod Stables owner and two suburban Chicago horse owners. Once the trial began, Johnson went back on his statements and said that Silas had never asked him to do anything. Silas Jane was acquitted. This was a common occurrence with Silas Jane and his many run-ins with the law and the court system. Jane cronies would often give prosecutors all they would need to put Jane behind bars and agree to testify in court, but then develop severe amnesia like Johnson did. Some even said they had no memory of what they had eaten for breakfast that morning. Cellmates reported that Silas had a physical hit list he kept on which there were at least a dozen people against whom he wanted revenge. Helen Brock was one of them. 39-year-old Helen Voorhees was working as a hat check girl in Palm Beach, Florida, when she met millionaire candy company owner Frank V. Brock, 21 years her senior. Helen and Frank later married, and the couple enjoyed a life of leisure in the Chicago area before Frank died in 1970. Helen inherited $20 million, nearly $160 million in today's value, making her one of the richest women in America. This allowed Helen Brock to pursue one of her passions, horses. In 1977, Helen bought horses from a stable Silas Jane had dealings with and became unhappy with the animals she received. Authorities have since confirmed that Helen spent $196,000 on nine horses in that year. Feeling cheated, Helen had apparently threatened to draw police attention to the scam. In February of 1977, Helen Brock's houseman drove her to O'Hare Airport for a trip to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. After a routine checkup, she left the facility and disappeared into the night. No one aboard the aircraft for her return flight to Chicago recalled her arrival at the airport, and she has never been seen again. As you can imagine, one of the richest women in America going missing was no small event. Within the first year of investigations into Helen's disappearance, some items in her home vanished, while a suitcase that gave evidence toward a natural death mysteriously materialized. It seems as though her home was tampered with. 
A former prison mate of Silas's said that after his parole in 1979, he removed Helen's remains from a stable in Morton Grove and buried her in rural Minnesota. He took authorities on several fruitless searches for the body, which was never found. In 1984, seven years after she disappeared, Helen Brock was declared legally dead. In 1977, while Silas Jane was still serving his prison sentence, George Jane's widow, Marion, sued Silas Jane for $7.5 million, nearly $38 million adjusted for inflation, in a wrongful death suit for George Jane's murder. One year later, Marion Jane was awarded $1 million in damages in her wrongful death suit against Silas Jane. By then, with Silas's finances dwindling, he later offered to settle with Marion for $250,000, which she refused. In 1979, Silas Jane was paroled after serving almost his bare minimum sentence. His wife had to put the couple's house in Elgin up as a security deposit on the $25,000 bond due to the Jane wealth almost disappearing while Silas was in jail. He never told authorities anything about his crimes. We mentioned Silas Jane's hit list earlier. In February of 1979, the Chicago Tribune reported that those on the list included George Jane's widow, Marion Jane, and her daughter Linda. Quote, he always said he wants everyone he hates to go before he dies. The article quotes arsonist Charles Johnson as stating. In the years following, Silas continued to have various dealings with the law, including a night in the Metropolitan Correctional Center and a lawsuit against the governor of Illinois. Up until the end, Silas was ready to fight anyone he felt had crossed him. Silas Jane died of leukemia at the age of 80 at St. Joseph Hospital in Elgin. He was later cremated with his ashes given to his wife, Dorothy. His obituary in the Chicago Tribune focused mainly on his many troubles with the law. Crackdowns by authorities and insurance companies and the decrease of interest in all things horse-related dried up much of the horse syndicate that had previously orbited around Silas, but not before he had destroyed the lives of many during his decades of violence. Descendants of the original Jane brothers still run the Arday Farm in Elgin, Illinois. According to their website, quote, Arday Farm was founded on the concept that proper horse care and training will be a catalyst to success. We focus on building a strong connection between horse and rider in and out of the show ring. listening to this episode about Silas Jane, the Killer Horseman. This episode was written and recorded by Anna Mason and me, Tommy Henry. Anna can be found on Twitter at Anna D-O-T Mason. Check out the Chicago History Podcast Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages for articles and pictures related to this episode and past episodes posted throughout the week. If you want to reach out with questions or suggestions for future topics, you can leave me a voice message by going to chicagohistorypod.com and clicking on the microphone in the lower corner. Depending on the content, I may play your message on a future episode. 
The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thank you very much, Johnny. He can be found at JKS on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. And we'll be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.